Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Bible Basics webinar. We're glad to be together again this evening. And we've got two exciting topics tonight as we continue our look at the different sections of the Bible, trying to get an overview of Scripture. We're going to have uh, Jamin speak to us first this evening and look at the prophet Hosea. And then Don is with us tonight, who's going to take us through the principles of spiritual marriage and a little bit about what it foreshadows in the future. So we're glad you're with us. And we'll ask Brother Jamin to take it away. All right. Thanks, Dan. So in our first section, Finding Your Way, we're continuing with our overview of the Bible. And tonight we're going to dive into the book of Hosea. And if you're looking in your Bible for the book of Hosea, you're going to find this book right after the books of the major prophets you see there at the lower middle section of the screen. It comes right in the Bible after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And it begins a section which is commonly known as the book of the minor prophets, those 12 shorter books of prophecy that conclude the Old Testament. And actually, if you looked in the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, it's actually one book called the Book of the Twelve, this book that concludes this section of prophets. Now, you may be wondering, why are they called minor prophets? Now, it's not because they're any less important than any of the other books of the prophets. It's not that Hosea is less important than Isaiah or Jeremiah, but it's rather just because they are so much shorter in length. If you were to look at the length of some of these books of the prophets, take Daniel, one of the shortest major prophets, it's almost twice as long in length as the largest of the minor prophets, Zechariah. So while they're minor in length, while we call them the minor prophets, they're by no means minor in the importance of their message. You see, just like the books of the major prophets, just like the books of the law of history and of poetry, the books of the minor prophets are the words of God through his prophet. They're God's word to us. And of course, as we established early on in our series, the Bible is the inspired word of God. So each and every book, whether it's a minor prophet, a major prophet, a book of history or law or poetry, well, they all have important lessons for us. But we want to zoom in a little bit on the book of Hosea. You know, one of those key Bible study tools we talked about is context. And when we are looking at events, especially events in the Bible, some of them happening thousands, if not many thousands of years ago, it's often important to put a book in context to get our bearings. What was going on in history? Why was God sending this message to a nation? What was the nation doing? Because knowing when and to whom a message was delivered, it can often give us an understanding about why God sent his prophet. And in Hosea, we get the context in the first verse, and that's on the Bible right there. Sorry, first verse of the book from the Bible, and that's on the screen right here before us in Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, where we read, The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. That's the summary and the context we get for the book of Hosea. In one short verse, God introduces the context of the entire book of Hosea. It was in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, those kings of Judah to the south. 
And it was in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. You know, if you were here for our series or couple of classes that we did on the kings of Israel and Judah, I believe Dan took us through them a while back. Some of those names might sound familiar, such as Jeroboam or Hezekiah. But unless you have an affinity for timelines and history, unless dates and chronology are your favorite thing, it might be really hard to figure out in your mind where these kings reigned. What time period are we talking about here? So let's jump to our timeline that we've used a few times to help visualize this. So here's a timeline of the kings and prophets of Israel and Judah. It goes all the way from Solomon down to the governors in Israel in the time of the exiles, like Nehemiah. But here we're going to focus on the upper right portion of the screen where we circled this section. And perhaps you can make out there in the yellow and blue line, Hosea. We can see there that Hosea was prophesying for a period of around 40 years at least, depending on how long into these reigns he prophesied. 40 years. By, by length of time, he was hardly a minor prophet, speaking God's word for decades to the nation. And though in verse 1 we read that Hosea would prophesy during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Jeroboam, it would actually be to the last of these kings that Hosea would direct most of his message. Because Hosea, as you see there in yellow, is actually a prophet primarily to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, if you're especially astute, perhaps you can see there on the screen, Hosea prophesies during the reigns of a lot more than one king of the north. We see Jeroboam there, Jeroboam II. We also see Zechariah, Shalom, Menahem, Pekaiah, Pekah, and Hoshea. But why aren't they listed in Hosea 1, verse 1? Well, it's likely because in God's eyes, these weren't true kings. Hosea would later prophesy, speaking God's word to the people and say, they have set up kings, but not by me. You see, in God's eyes, these weren't kings. And if we were to read 2 Kings chapter 15, we'd see the history of the nation of Israel at this time. It was a bloody history. There was assassinations. Kings killing kings, kings reigning for a period of three months and then being murdered. There was wars. There was the murdering of women who had their children. There was bloodshed. This was the legacy of these six kings. And so in God's record, they're not recorded. In God's eyes, they were hardly kings, but rather base men, murderers, utterly ruthless, who sat on the throne for their own glory. And so for context, that's the nation that Hosea was going to speak to. It was a nation that was led by murdering kings, a nation that sought to seek the benefits for themselves. And it was just like the days of the judges that we looked at a while back. When we read that phrase, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That was the nation of Israel when Hosea was called to be a prophet. You know, it's a lot like our own day, isn't it? where daily in the news we hear of wars, of murders, of companies and politicians lying, of individuals seeking to play the world for their own wealth as they wrestle for power and cause calamity to many millions and billions along the way. You see, just like in the days of Hosea, today everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, 
And so while Hosea's message was meant for Israel in the first part, it's also really a message for you and I, because we live in a similar period of time. And if we had to describe it in a single word, we might use the word humanism. It's all about you and I. There's no higher authority, every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. And so, friends, that's a whirlwind context to the book of Hosea. We're in the northern kingdom of Israel under the reign of wicked and murdering kings, and the nation's doing whatever they want. The nation of Israel is truly in a dire state. Well, another thing when we're looking at a book, especially a book of the prophets, is to look at the structure of the book. The book of Hosea is 14 chapters long, and really you can break it down into two sections. First section covering the first three chapters and the latter section covering the last 11 chapters. And chapter one is going to deal with a calling of the prophet. In rather short succession, in the next three or four verses of chapter one, God is going to outline the substance of Hosea's work. He's going to prepare him for the message that he had to deliver. And this was no small feat. Hosea was going to be preaching God's word to a nation that didn't want to hear it. And to prepare his prophet to preach, God's not going to send him to law school or teach him about oratory skills. He's going to command him to marry a woman of ill repute. He's going to command him to raise up a family with her. And before Hosea even begins this relationship, God warns him that his wife's going to leave him and that he's going to have to take her back with a great deal of effort and sacrifice. Now, perhaps that sounds like an outlandish command, doesn't it? Why would God ask his prophet to do such a thing? Well, friends, if we read those chapters carefully, if we listen to what the word of God is saying in chapters one through three, We see that God is asking his prophet Hosea to do exactly what he did with the nation of Israel. Because God brought the nation of Israel out of idolatry in Egypt. He looked after the nation. He cared for them. We looked at the nation of Israel going through the wilderness. God gave them food and water and raiment. They were his chosen people and he protected them. He brought them into a promised land. Yet what did Israel do? They followed other gods. They barely made it into the, into the wilderness before they turned to Aaron and said, make us gods like we had in Egypt. And of course, it was through much pain and sorrow that God would bring them back. Through captivity, war, and famine, they would return to God. And so God is going to ask his prophet to live out the same thing that he had done with the nation of Israel. And you know, last week in our webinar, we talked about parables, didn't we? We looked at one of the parables of Jesus in the New Testament. We looked at it as a story with a hidden meaning. And well, friends, parables aren't just in the New Testament. They're in the Old Testament as well. Because Hosea's life is going to be a parable of the relationship of God with the nation of Israel. And through this relationship with his wife, God's going to prepare Hosea, his prophet, to preach the final 11 chapters of his prophecy. Now, if that sounded rather verbose, if that sounded like a tall order, 
If the idea of a spiritual and symbolic relationship is new to you, well, don't worry, our co my co-presenter tonight is going to address this topic further. Well, the latter half of the book turns a little bit. It's Hosea is going to speak God's message to the nation. And the main problem that Hosea is going to address in these latter chapters is one of hypocrisy. He's going to rebuke a nation who is double-minded in all their ways. And if we had to summarize this section with a single verse, perhaps we might go to Isaiah, sorry, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where it says, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You see, the nation of Israel, friends, never completely forgot their God. Yet rather than worshiping him alone, they chose to worship a pantheon of gods. They worshiped all the gods of the nations around him, yet they kept up sacrifice to God. They kept up offering sacrifice and burnt offerings, yet they had completely forgotten why they were doing it in the first place. Their heart was divided as they sought to worship Baal and God, as they sought to worship Ashtoreth and God. And you see, God would rather have a nation that was focused on showing godly mercy to one another than one that sacrificed sacrifices for show. God would rather have a nation that had a true knowledge and understanding of him than one who daily offered burnt offerings with no understanding. You see, keeping the law is one thing. It was good for the Israelites to do this. But to keep the law without understanding why they were doing it, without having mercy and knowledge, well, they failed to hit the mark. And so Hosea would preach repentance to a nation that was so double-minded in their worship, they didn't even understand they were doing anything wrong. And really, this brings us to one of the main focuses of Hosea's message that occurs throughout chapters 1 through 14. And that's the idea of Hosea preaching a returning to God. Because for generations under wicked rulers, remember that there weren't any good kings in the nation of Israel. The people had forgotten what true worship was. They worshiped God with sacrifice and burnt offerings. Yet immediately they turned to other gods and offered unto them the same. They thought they could please both gods. Yet in so doing, they completely forgot the one true God, the God of Israel. And really, it was a lesson that the nation of Israel should have learned in the days of Elijah. When on Mount Carmel, there was a challenge between the God of Israel and Baal. And Elijah called out to them, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And of course, in that scenario, Baal didn't answer a word. His prophets prayed and danced before him for hours, yet they couldn't get but a single response. And immediately after Elijah offered his prayer unto the Lord God of Israel, fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. Unfortunately, in Hosea's day, Israel couldn't choose. They were halting between two opinions. They were on a fence between which God they should serve, whom they should worship. They were undecided. They were, as Jesus would describe it in the book of Revelation, lukewarm. 
They weren't hot or cold. They couldn't decide what they wanted to be, who they wanted to worship. And you know, while that sounds like a sad and somber book, why would I want to study the book of Hosea? It's all about wickedness and faithfulness and the rebuke of the prophet, isn't it? Well, friends, the story ends with hope. It's a glimmer of hope that we see overarching in the theme of God's love for those who call upon his name. It's a theme that runs throughout the book. We see it in the calling out of the nation from Egypt. God called out this people. We see it in the steadfastness of God to forgive. Even though time and time again, his people committed sins, God was willing to forgive those who repented. We see it in the rebuke of the prophet. The fact that God was willing to chasten the people at all showed how much he cared for them, that he wouldn't let them run away to their own demise. And of course, we see it in the way that Hosea says God will speak to the heart of the nation. And at the very end of the book, God will heal them. God will love them freely. Both chapter 3 and chapter 14, those two chapters that end off the sections, they speak of a time when Israel will know God, when they will recognize his love for them, when they will worship with him as the one true God. They're no longer going to halt between two opinions, but they're going to unanimously worship one God. And so with that brief consideration of the book, friends, we come to understand a little bit about the prophet Hosea. His message was a somber warning to all who sought to worship God and still seek the pleasures of the world and the idols around. He warned them to flee from such hypocrisy. But, you know, contained in that prophet, that prophet's message is also a word of hope. It's a word of hope for all who will seek to return to God, who seek to serve him in knowledge and understanding. And together with Hosea, we look forward to the day when Israel will return to God and when the whole earth will know of his greatness, when all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. And all will come to know his righteousness and love. Because right now, the nation of Israel is not at peace. They haven't been healed by God yet. They're in turmoil. They just brokered a recent peace with the nations around them. But that peace is not going to last for long. Yet one day when they recognize God as the one true God, when they recognize the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah, when they open their hearts to God, the prophet Hosea tells us that God will heal them. And we look forward to that day. Well, thank you, Brother Jamin. That's uh, led well into the topic we have before us. It's um, the one topic I have to deal with, spiritual marriage, what it foreshadows. And um, one verse that Jamin referred to everyone is in Hosea 4, uh, Hosea chapter 14 and verse 4. I'd like to read that verse. This is one of the examples we'll look at this evening. God's dealing with the nation of Israel. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For mine anger is turned away from him or from the nation, from them. And therefore, our topic this evening is spiritual marriage.
what it foreshadows. We go to the first slide there, Jamin, please, if you would. I just have a few introductory comments. First slide is to do with Adam and Eve. Before we get into that, I'd like to just uh, preface my comments this evening with a few introductory remarks. I fully realize that the, this topic and what we are going to review this evening may be a sensitive area for some, especially for those who have experienced marital difficulties or who are not married. One thing we all can do is counsel and provide encouragement and help for others, especially those who have had, who have had sadness because of a marital difficulty. Um, plus, uh, whether we're married or not, we have the long-term hope of being part of the Bride of Christ, which we will look at in a while. If we're baptized, we're called to be saints. Uh, this part of our hope never changes. It never fails. Whether we're married or not, we have this to look forward to. It's also difficult to present this topic for me. It reminds me of my inadequacies and, and my failings. But we have to deal with the ideals. We have to look at them, the principles now and then to remind us of what we should do. Some of us may have to set aside what we think is marriage. And when we look at the Bible for the true and real spiritual guidance and good examples, we will look at this evening. Marriages are made. They don't just happen. It takes a lot of give and take. We have to work together. It has to be much deeper than the physical attraction and the sexual desire. It's much more than that. It has to be the last a long time. Some of what we say this evening may also sound rather dreamlike, as if it's a fairy tale. It could never be like that. And we can understand that to a degree by what we see in society today. A few weeks ago, I, I completed the 2021 Canadian census. And I thought a census was you know, a short a number of questions about certain things. But I must admit I was appalled by the section on marriage and sexual orientation. Those parts never would have been there years ago. Would have been very simple. The moral fiber of society has become very low. And we shouldn't ignore this or overlook it. It's become very low in some areas. Yes, there still are good people out there. What's happened in these areas of, of marriage or not marriage or whatever, and sexual orientation, as they call it, is just something else that we would have never heard of years ago. Also, one critical factor is to find a right mate. To find a right, a good mate. Someone we wish to be married with. And that's another topic for another time. Do you remember, do you remember what the standard marriage vows are? Uh, there are variations, of course, but this is one you can pull off the internet. The standard marriage vow. I, Donald, take you, Miriam, to be my lawful, lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold, from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. That's the basics of the standard marriage vow. <clears throat> my parents were married for 63 years. 
my oldest brother who fell asleep in the Lord and will be resurrected. He passed away last December. He was married for 64 years. You say that's a dream world. Well, my wife and I have been married for just over 50 years. You say, well, what's the secret? There's no secret. There's no magic formula. The guidance is found in the Bible, and you will find it nowhere else. The guidance for marriage, finding the right mate, is found in the Bible, and nowhere else. So that's where we're going to go. <clears throat> we have on the slide before us the references in Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> and the Lord God said, it is not good that man, that's Adam, should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. And Adam, and Adam said, let me look up the uh, reference in my own Bible here. It's fun to find it a little easier. We'll look at uh, verse 21. And, and the Lord, um, sorry there, um, yeah, verse 21. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And uh, he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man and made he a woman and brought her unto him. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. They shall be one. That's the principle. Adam needed a help meet for him. That's the idea of being somebody who's fit, suitable, and complementary. So they would complement each other as one. One individual. Adam was formed of the ground, but Eve was made from Adam, taken from his side. Therefore, they were meant to be one. Therefore, a question. How do you separate one? How do you divide one into smaller pieces? They can't do it. It causes a lot of hurt, a lot of loss. And um, I find that never, each person is really not, not the same anymore. They went through a, a difficult time. Well, let's turn to the account in Matthew. We go to the next slide, please, there, Jamie. It's Matthew chapter 19. Some may say, well, Adam and Eve, it's just a fairy tale whale, fairy tale fairy tale way of telling what God uh, did or happened in the beginning it wasn't really true. Well, if that's the case, then Jesus uh, is speaking wrong here in Matthew chapter 19. He's answering a question from the Pharisees about putting away or divorcing the person. They said, well, no, that's not where we start. <laughs> we don't start thinking about divorce or marriage contracts or any of that stuff at all. We start at the beginning, he says, in verse 4 of Matthew 19. This is his answer. Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause shall a man leave father, mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two of them shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain or two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder or put away. Joined together. You could say attached inseparably is another way of saying that. Uh, you see on the rings there, maybe you can see the two shall become one. 
That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the ideal we should aim for. We're dealing with ideals here, principles, biblical principles, and they work. They work. We'll see in the next reference there, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 11. The whole section is interesting, but 1 Corinthians 11, verse 11 is quite important. It goes totally against what we hear today. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. They are interdependent. They're not two dependent individuals doing their own thing. The me principle, it's all about me, the me too. It's not that at all. That's why you, uh, you may say, think in the beginning, this is dream talk. No, it's the real deal. This is, where it, this is where it really matters. We are interdependent. We rely on each other. We work together, not independent. Let's go to the next slide there, please, Jamin. <clears throat> Marriage requires faithfulness. Absolutely trustworthiness, like our God. Great is thy faithfulness, is a quote there. Our God is very faithful. He's always there. This is our first example, an example of faithfulness. Marriage requires absolute fidelity and faithfulness to each other in mind and in body. God was always faithful to his nation, no matter what they did as a nation. He was always faithful. What examples do we have? The first one is the Lord God Almighty. In this quote in Isaiah 54, in verse 5, the Lord God Almighty, the God is the husband of the nation of Israel, his wife. Although unfaithful, he was the husband. For thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Thy redeemer, we'll see this again, thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The study of the redeemer in the Old Testament and New is important. He was their redeemer. That was his purpose. One of his many purposes, but in this case, he was the redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Let's have a look at the other reference here. It's in Isaiah chapter 49. Interesting the way God describes himself in Isaiah chapter 49. <clears throat> Just one verse there. Actually, two on the screen. Isaiah 49. Verses 15 and 16, describing his relation to Israel, to Zion. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet I will not forget thee. That's a real husband. Behold, I have graven, thine, graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. On it goes. I have graven thee. Upon the palms of my hands. Can you think of somebody else who had marks in the palms of their hand, of his hands? God's son. He did it for the same people and for us too. Marks on the palms of his hand. There they are. Never forget, will he? Never forget. God will not forget and break his covenant with Israel. Let's go to the next slide there, Jamin. Who's the other one? The other redeemer is Jesus, an example of faithfulness. Marriage requires faithfulness. Christ gave his life as the redeemer of the church or the ecclesia. Now, this section 
in Ephesians chapter 5, if you've never read it before, you must take time to read it, if not this evening sometime, and not just once. <laughs> and I find every time I read it, I see something else. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Meditate on the teaching that's here. Let us soak in. Let us sink in, so to speak. There's so much here. And the guiding principle here is submission. Submission. See verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. That's the principle. That's what God asked for from the nation of Israel. Submit to my will. I'm always here. Submit to my will. Submitting yourselves one to another in, in the fear of the Lord. Wives, submit yourselves under your, under your own husbands as under the Lord. This isn't a master-slave relationship. That's why I say this may sound like dream language. But it's something to do with our relationship with Jesus and with his Father. That's where we start from. We submit. For the husband is the head of the wife. Why? Even as Christ is the head of the ecclesia of the church. And he is the what? He's the savior of the body. Then what's the husband to the wife? Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their husbands in everything. Submission. What's the husband supposed to do? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. Even as Christ also loved the church. And what did he do for it? He gave his life for it. So we have a responsibility. It goes on. It goes on. There's so much in this chapter. The Redeemer. Christ gave his life. Christ's example gives us the idea of marriage requires mutual submission to each other, self-sacrificing love, two main keys of a spiritual marriage. Let's go to the next slide there, Jamin, please. Here's some essential. We hear a lot about essentials they did this, these days, don't we? Well, these are some essential ingredients to a lifelong marriage, a spiritual marriage. And you may think of more. I hope you do as I go through this list. Communication, cooperation, compassion, consideration, comprehension, courtesy, and care. Seven C's to remember. And the next list, patience, forgiveness, mutual respect, self-control, selflessness, humility, and kindness. The last two words on both lists, if we could do those, eh? care and kindness, all the rest would fall into place. They'd have to. Care and kindness describe our Lord, Jesus Christ, and his Father. Care and kindness and compassion and forgiveness. Can you think of more words? How about thoughtfulness? You could keep adding to these lists. This is real relationships, human relationships. Marital relationships is the relation that God had with his nation and Jesus with us. If you had to summarize these, these lists into one word, what would, you, what, what, what would that word be? Just one word. Only well, has four letters. L-O-V-E. That's love. That's the real love. Spiritual love. Self-sacrificing love. Physical love. Tenderness. It all goes together. It's not one they're not compartmentalized. They all have to go together to work well. And I'm talking to myself. Okay. 
If we do all of these things in our marriage, in our submission to Christ and to his Father, what's our reward? Is it worth it? Oh, yes, it is. Let's go to the next slide there, Jamin. It's right out of the book of Revelation. And there's some language that's difficult maybe to understand in Revelation. But you certainly get the picture. It's based on Ephesians 5 plus other, other parts of the New Testament at all. The Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth. He will be king. He will be a lion. He will be a bridegroom. He's looking forward to making all the faithful saints down through the ages his bride. In other words, to share time in the kingdom. And thereafter, therefore, it's called a marriage. <laughs> this is our reward. The marriage of the Lamb has come. That's the prophecy. And his wife has made herself ready. What does that remind you of? Well, that goes back to Eve, doesn't it? She would be fit, suitable, complimentary, ready to be a good wife for Adam. And that's what we're supposed to do. And we're supposed to be ready. The marriage supper of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. So let's work at it, everyone. And if we've struggled, let's try harder. Ask for help. If these are new principles for us, they're here. Just read them. They're here. There's just a few verses of many we've looked at this evening. So we'll leave it there, uh, Jamin and Dan, and uh, let you take over from there. Okay, thank you very much. All right, thanks, Don, for taking us through that. It's amazing. We often say this in our webinars, how well these topics mesh together, looking at the idea of a spiritual relationship and seeing that played out in the, in the uh, story of Hosea. Well, next week, our Bible, our sorry, our Bible basic webinar continues, and in our topic "Finding Your Way: The Overview of the Bible," we're going to move on to another of the minor prophets. We're going to look at the prophet Joel, and in key Bible themes, we're going to look at the idea of God the Father. So, we encourage you all to join us next week to look at some of these exciting Bible topics. And of course, if you have any questions, feel free to ask them afterwards. But also, if you'd prefer, you can reach out to us on a few of the following social media platforms, as well as our website and our email address. Feel free to send us any questions that you might have or any comments about the, base, the Bible basic webinars.